guys know that this is a very blessed church as well. And I think that uh, it's only fitting that a church that encourages so many others should receive so much encouragement from God. Uh, the leadership of this church is, is really second to none, in my opinion. I feel like every other day I get on Facebook and Jeff and Kelly are helping more and more teens to get baptized and to know about God. I mean, it's like a daily thing. Uh, the eldership in this church, I think Ed and Deb's leadership of this church. Um, Jessica and I listen to the podcast of the sermons like every week. We just download it. We listen to it in the car. I listen to it when I go on a run. So I know we've been going through Philippians, so we're going to get there in a second. But uh, there, are, there are few people in this world that I trust um, implicitly with the knowledge of the Bible, the spirit of God, the way that I trust Ed and Deb with their leadership. And you guys are very, very blessed to have them here. So uh, without further ado, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Like I said, I've been listening to the podcast, so I, I'm, I'm trying to humbly follow in the, in the footsteps of what's been going on right there. Uh, but just a little bit of a recap. Paul is a master of rhetoric. The way that Paul teaches, the way that he speaks, it's, it's really second to none. And this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, he wrote while he was in prison. It's one of his prison epistles. Uh, and this church in Philippi, it's really in this Greece and Macedonia area. It's near the Aegean Sea. It's on this major thoroughfare through that part of the world. But an amazing thing about this church is it is a very nationalistic church. A lot of retired Roman military there. A lot, it's got this huge military presence and a lot of people that are vying for this Roman citizenship. That's, there's an opportunity for it to be granted to many of them there. Last week, you guys talked about Paul being in chains, but that the gospel is unchained, right? Amen. That nothing stops the gospel. See, I told you guys I listened to it, right? <laughs> and Paul's suffering has allowed for the gospel to advance even further. He says, if I suffer, that's okay because it's making the gospel reach more and more people. And what we're about to read here Amen. is Paul just calling us to do the same thing. All right. We're going to start in verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, I said Paul was a master of rhetoric, and usually when you're going to tell someone they're going to suffer, you kind of butter it up. You make it really nice and you make it this super high and glorious and noble call. But Paul just says it straight. He said, look, I suffered. You guys are going to suffer too. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. My wife and I live in Chicago now. We work with a campus ministry in the west region of Chicago. We've got about 35 students in our region. And uh, when we first moved to Chicago... And people heard that I was from Virginia. They thought of two things. They thought of 
backwood people with no teeth. And then they thought of the CIA. Because anytime you watch a Jason Bourne movie, the CIA headquarters is where? It's in Langley, Virginia. Right? And so people are like, oh, you're, you're from there, right? And, and are you, you know, do you have any friends that are in that? I'm like, I couldn't tell you even if I did, right? It's one of my favorite genres of movie. This whole, you know, covert spy, double agent kind of thing. We all love it. The Mission Impossible, the Bond, the Jason Bourne. There's a major theme that occurs in all of those movies, and it's this idea of plausible deniability. In fact, plausible deniability is the only reason a lot of those movies can actually function. What plausible deniability is, is it's when someone denies the knowledge of or responsibility for any objectionable actions committed by others. It's being willfully ignorant. It's saying... I don't know what you're talking about. You know, wink, wink, wink. Like, I, I will turn this way and let you do something that I don't want to be responsible for knowing that you were doing. That's called plausible deniability. For those of you who are not covert spies, plausible deniability is when you pretend to not hear your spouse asking you to take out the trash. <laughs> what? I didn't hear. How could I have heard you? The TV was on so loud. It's for those of you teens that didn't hear about making your bed or doing your homework. Oh, I was so focused. I was praying really, really hard, Mom. I just, it it came right through. I was so focused on God, right? Plausible deniability is a dangerous way to run an organization, let alone a government. But I think there's an even greater threat to us right now that Paul is getting into in a second. And it's not plausible deniability. It's plausible deniability. And yes, I just made that up, but that's the title of the sermon today is Plausible Deniability. There is no Santa Claus. Yes, that is not the clause we are talking about. I hope the kids' kingdom's already been dismissed, right? What is, what is a clause? Well, a clause is is a particular or a separate article within a treaty or a bill or a contract that has a condition extended to it. A clause is something conditioned upon a circumstance. It's, it's your return policy. It's a manufacturing default. It's the insurance on your iPhone that doesn't work quite like you thought it did. You know, like when you drop in the toilet, that doesn't count. But when it breaks on its own, that does count. You know, those are clauses. If you've ever signed a contract, It's all the fine print that we've probably just skimmed right over. A clause is an if-then. It's testing based upon a condition. And typically, clauses within a contract or within a statement are followed by something that's a sure-fired, actionable item. If this happens, then this. If your phone blows up on its own then you can get a new one. If the shirt does not fit, but you have the tag and the original receipt and the credit card it was purchased on, you can return it. It's a hypothesis. And this this type of clause is really the entire basis of our faith and our discipleship. If Jesus really is Lord, then I will follow him. Why would I follow someone who's not Lord? 
who's not Messiah, who's not Christ. But if he is, then I will follow. Well, that hypothesis is accepted every single time in Christ, isn't it? Jesus is always Lord. Therefore, our condition is always to follow. Praise God for that. You know, if we accept that Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all. Or he's not Lord at all. You guys get what I'm saying is that our followership, our discipleship, our lordship of Jesus is a, is a condition upon the clause of, is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is, we must follow. The way we follow is not conditioned upon anything else except for Jesus being Lord. The way we live as disciples is not conditioned upon anything other than a God that loves us, gave everything up, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. But the problem is that most of Christianity today does not look like that. A majority of Christianity, especially Western American Christianity, functions very different than the biblical precedent we see. It's largely focused on emotionalism and individualism. And you have to watch out when you say that to people. Because as Americans, we like individualism. We like emotionalism because it's, it's linked to passion. It's linked to, to purpose. It's linked to revolution and the very things that are within our DNA as Americans. John Adams, one of our early presidents, wrote, I always consider the settlement of America with reverence and wonder as the opening of a grand scene and design in providence for the illumination of the ignorant and the emancipation of the slavish part of mankind all over the earth. And thus was born a concept called American exceptionalism. Meaning we as Americans can be above the rules. We are always the exception to the rule. We can revolt and start new countries because they didn't have it right and what we think is better. Now that has led to a lot of great things in our nation. That is the foundation of democracy, is that we can speak up, we can vote. We love that about our country. But that can get in the way of the way that we approach and live out the word of God. Because we have this plausible Christianity. We have this Christianity that sometimes we think, I'm an exception to this rule right here. I'm an exception to what Christ calls me to follow because my circumstance is so different. I know Jesus died and was crucified, but what I am going through right now is just so different. He would understand. You know, God's word is clear. And just because we don't like it, it doesn't give us the right to amend it. We love the amendments to our constitution. They brought about a lot of great things, but I love even more that the word of God was so perfect in its original form that it needs no mankind amendment to it, that it was perfect because that would make God wrong and us infallible. And last time I checked, the collective mankind is moving in a disastrous direction like a freight train without brakes. We're in no position to give ourselves a clause that excuses the way we follow Christ. Paul says in verse 27, whatever happens, you want to talk about a clause, that's a clause right there. Imagine signing a contract that says whatever happens, 
This house is yours. Whatever happens, you're responsible for this car. Whatever happens, you're not getting a new iPhone. None of us would sign a contract like that. Because within our DNA, within our society, we allow ourselves to have exceptional situations for everything. But what Paul says in verse 27 is, whatever happens. Other translations say, just one thing. Only let, only be, above all. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is no plausible deniability in Christ. There is no room for us as citizens of heaven to change or amend the conduct that makes us ambassadors of Christ. Now, Paul is playing on a big idea here to this crowd. It's the idea of having Roman citizenship, a citizenship that pretty much granted them tons of protection and rights, a citizenship that many of them did not deserve. Now, being an American citizen is a great thing. Now, if you don't like the way America feels today, just go overseas to another country as an American, and you'll be grateful for the citizenship you have here. Now, that doesn't mean everything here is right, but it's a powerful citizenship. And Paul is playing on that idea with them. He says, conduct yourselves as a citizen of Christ. There's a word here he used in Greek, polytuomai, which is where we get this idea of, of um, politics or polis, like Minneapolis, Annapolis. It's the citizens of this area. He says, whatever happened, I don't care if you're in Philippi, if you're in Galatia, if you're in Ephesus, whatever happens, first and foremost, you're a citizen of heaven. Can you imagine being an outsider in a world dominated by an imperial power like Rome and then all of a sudden granted a full-fledged citizenship with immutable rights as if you were natural-born nobility? I mean, you'd feel like you hit the jackpot. Paul's saying, you've received an even greater treasure. You've been granted full-fledged grace Filled citizenship in heaven that cannot be taken away. So conduct yourselves that way. I think there are three common excuses that, that this text addresses this morning. I had one point, that was it, and I got three practicals. So don't worry, it's going to be short. It's going to be on time. But I think there are three common excuses for conditional Christianity that we face today. They are what we feel what others think, and when things change. These are difficult truths for us to follow. That no matter what we feel, Christ is Lord. That no matter what other people think, this is the conduct required as a disciple of Jesus. Or no matter what changes in our life, This is a lifestyle that honors our Lord and Savior. That's a high calling. We have to be steadfast in that. Now, I don't know how many of you, I don't know if many of you guys played football. I never played football growing up. I play something very, very similar now. It's called fantasy football. And I've been working on my roster over the past couple days. I have to declare my keepers by noon tomorrow. And it's, man, it's getting down to the wire. I've been preparing, but... 
they do something in, in football and in most sports where they have huddles, right? And a lot of time in a huddle, there's a little pep talk. And so I'm going to need you guys to help me out with this today. In a pep talk or in a huddle, a lot of times when they're about to finish, they say, ready, break. And everyone claps on time. So let's try that together, okay? Ready, break. All right, one more time. Ready, break. All right. I think we need a little pep talk this morning too. And we just got one from Paul, but I'm going to take you to, it's not quite as great as Paul, but it's up there. It might be Keanu Reeves' best movie of all time. If you could say he has one of those. It's an old movie called The Replacements. Now teens don't go see it. I've seen TV versions that are much more clean than the Netflix version that's out right now. But I dug and I found a clip. I want you guys to watch quarterback Shane Falco lead his team right here. I know you're tired. I know you're hurting. And I wish I could say something that was classy and inspirational. But I just want to be outside. Patting heels. Chicks take stars. Glory. That's the way. Shut up. DC right. Flip 90 dig. On the center, on the center, right? All right. What a talk. <laughs> one of the greats, I told you. All right. Point practical number one pain heals. And then we'll get to chick stick scars, and then we'll get to glory lasts forever. But first, practical pain heals. We don't like the notion of suffering, do we? It's hard when we read through that text and we hear Paul saying, You're going to have to suffer as I did. And we all sat there and go, Oh, I know where this sermon's going already. I don't want to suffer. In fact, we like to talk about how we feel. That's all Facebook is filled with today. I feel this. I'm a PhD in my own feelings right now. Let me tell you about it. You know, the world we live in is pregnant with emotionalism. Is it possible, though, that we've become so emotionally aware that we've begun to excuse ourselves? Of the character of Christ. When we feel tired, we're more tempted. But that's just because we're tired, right? When we're angry, it's okay to be short because it's because we're angry. That doesn't mean we're bad people because we still believe in God. We're just we're just angry, right? When we're playing sports and we let it all out and we have no self-control and we don't look like a Christian on the court, but it's because we're being passionate, right? And Jesus was passionate, wasn't he? Doesn't he want me to be passionate and true to how I feel? What about, what about our relationship? Well, it isn't immoral. They love Jesus. So it's okay if they're not really living like a disciple. They're one of my coworkers. Jesus would want me to spend time with them, to get to know them. And on and on and on we go. The more emotionally aware we get, the quicker we are sometimes to excuse ourselves of living a life that's worthy of the gospel that Jesus died for. We've taken something temporary and given it roots and foundation and influence over every aspect of our life. Paul says here, whatever happens, that word means only, above all else, only do this. But later on, he says, in verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So there's this only paired with this not only. Do you guys see what I'm saying here? Only and not only of the highest importance. But I think what our world of Christianity today has said is it has said only believe. Everything else is secondary and fluff and not needed. Whereas what does Paul say? He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy and also believe and also undergo the suffering that I'm saying. Paul is saying, let's not get sidetracked by the things that are temporary to take away from the commands of God that give us eternal life. Pain heals, period. Feelings change, period. That love you felt when you were 16 years old and you just knew they were the one for you. That's not even in the same ballpark or universe as the truth of a man who lived a perfect life and died for us. Feelings change all the time. Teens, I know you don't always believe me, but they do. They change. And if you guys want proof, go eat some bad Mexican food. Because things change real quick. You feel like death. Like life is not worth living. There are certain there are certain medical conditions that really inhibit people's life, but there's nothing quite like a really bad stomach ache coming from food you ate. You can't leave a 10-foot radius of your bathroom. You feel like life is about to end. And then what happens when it goes away? We feel great again. Life's not that bad. I love Mexican food. I'm going to eat it for dinner. I think spiritually, some of us eat eat a little bit too much Mexican food. We rely a little bit too much on the things that we're feeling that are temporary and not the unconditional, non-circumstantial conduct of Jesus Christ. Some of us are way too constipated for our emotions to be anywhere close to indicators of what is true. Our digestive tract can no longer handle the truth. Because we've conditioned it with a chaser of clause-based and circumstantial Christianity. We no longer see clearly because we're blinded by temporary things that we feel. Pain heals. I love the scripture Alanda shared in the welcome. Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What are the things that Paul commands us to think about? The things that do not change in Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, because in Christ, those things don't change. They don't change like your stomach does when you eat bad food. They don't change like your temptation level just because you're tired or angry or stressed. We need to focus on the things that are true. Pain heals. Christ does not change. Now, does being a Christian look the same in every situation? Absolutely not. We're not called to be robots of Christ. Of course, Christianity has different applications. It's the wisdom of God And it searches the deep waters of our hearts. I'm not talking about a one-size-fits-all approach to Christianity. 
God is very gracious. But his grace is not a license for us to amend the righteousness that Jesus calls us to. Grace covers up when we fall short. It doesn't give us an excuse to change what God has commanded us to follow. James 1 verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God does not change based on the time of day or where the sun is at. And his truth doesn't either. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, which includes tomorrow. Jesus has never changed and will never change. God has never changed and will never change. So the conduct and righteousness of a disciple that follows his truth should not change either. Does your conduct as a citizen of heaven shift because of your feelings? Do you caveat your righteousness based upon circumstances? If so, there's a good chance you're not standing firm in the one spirit that he calls us to. Come on. But you're basing your foundation upon something that changes. Ask someone who knows you well. Ask a spouse. Ask a roommate. Ask a best friend. What excuses or circumstances do you let influence the way that you live for Jesus? That's a very humbling question to ask. But it's a very important one if we're to take seriously the message that Paul is going to give us for the rest of Philippians. There's a clause here. But the clause is whatever happens, this is the way we should live. Point number two, chicks dig scars. Ready, break. Okay, let's do that again. Ready, break. All right, point number two. Practical number two, chicks dig scars. You know, this past year I had the opportunity to run a Spartan race. I've actually run two in the past year. And uh, for those of you that don't know, they're like a Tough mutter or uh, those obstacle courses with all the mud and the ropes and the barbed wire and the fire pits. And they're really, really cool. They make for great photographs. Well, I've been training for one of those for a long time. It's about eight miles, eight to nine miles, 30 something obstacles. It's a long race. And uh, my wife was so proud when I finished it. You know, I was running the race. I was envisioning her being at the finish line. And because there was a storm, she couldn't be. She was in the parking lot. And I ran it with my, I ran it with my friend uh, Nathan. And uh, he's got a, he had a young daughter. And, you know, I finished the race. And I was like, man, I'm done. I'm so excited. He finished the race. He saw his wife. And he just, like, broke into tears and, like, ran and hugged her. And he's like, I never thought I'd see my daughter again. And... <laughs> But my wife was proud of me for finishing that. She bragged to everyone. She cooked my favorite meal afterwards. She hates feet and she rubbed my feet after that. The point I'm making is there's something incredibly bonding about scars and suffering. It brings people together when we suffer through something together. This year I ran the race again and I didn't, uh, the gel packs that I normally take, those little carb things that marathon runners use, they didn't have them at the store. And so I thought I'll just get one at the race. And I got one and it was a different one than I thought. It, you know, it wasn't the same one I'd had before, but I thought, oh, they're more or less all the same. It's sugar and carbs, right? And I'll take it halfway through the race. And I get there and it turns into this powder thing that I got to stir into water. And so at mile three or four, I take this drink, strawberry flavored, tasted great, lots of sugar. About 10 minutes later, I felt awful because they gave me the wrong one. 
And it wasn't one that I was used to. And so for the rest of the race, I was on the verge of throwing up. Now, that's not a fun way to run five miles through mud and obstacles. In fact, when I finished the race, that was the very thing that I did as soon as I crossed the finish line. But I was endeared and so close to my companions because they helped me through the rest of that race. I could not have gotten through on my own. I had brothers that ran that race with me and they helped me to finish it. You know, we all dig scars, don't we? Scars are a sign of brotherhood, of forged friendship, of service. Paul says in verse 27, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. If we want to avoid this plausible deniability, we've got to fight this fight together. We've got to allow other people into our lives to help us out. There are no islands in Christianity. Even Jesus, the strongest among all of us, at his weakest moment, brought in his disciples to help him pray, to sit there with him. Now they fell asleep, but I wonder if their presence helped him. I wonder if knowing that they were weak, but that they loved, helped him to get through that. None of us are as strong alone as we are with one another. My closest friends are the ones that I've adventured with. And what better adventure than living a life of Christ? What better adventure to bond us to one another than that hard felt sacrificial but glorious fight of the good fight? You know, in Chicago every summer we have a ministry training program that the campus students come through. It's called MIT, Ministry and Training. It's not the school in in Boston. Um, Maybe it's the spiritual equivalent to that. I don't know yet. You know, the verdict's not out yet. But uh, you guys have programs like this. Uh, But part of of the MIT is, is every day we give the students an evangelism goal. And part of it is not because you have to share your faith with a certain amount of people a day to become a Christian. That's not true. That's nowhere in the Bible. But the Bible does call us to push beyond our comfort zone, doesn't it? That's exactly what Paul's been preaching about his chains. And so we we ask them to share their faith with a certain amount of people a day. And you know what happens every year? They're in this remote part of the south suburbs of Chicago. And every year they get kicked out of Walmart. They get kicked out of the grocery store. They get kicked out of the hardware store. They're no longer allowed at Dairy Queen or Burger King or any of those places. And it's not because they've done anything disrespectful. In fact, they've been incredibly respectful. It's because they just show up and everyone knows what they're about to do. They're about to share their faith with every living, breathing thing that speaks their language. But you know what? They wear that as a badge of courage. When they go to the mall and the security guard escorts them to the door, they talk about that for the rest of their lives. Every time they see each other, they say, hey, dude, you remember that one time we were sharing our faith? We were so much like Jesus, they had to ask us to leave. (laughs) But we dig scars. Scars bring us together. They are our badge of courage. They are honor for us. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Paul says, hey, this suffering that you're about to endure, this suffering that's required, it's something we do together. 
It's not something you're called to do on your own. It's a burden we share. There's scars that match one another like, like tattoos that you get together. You'll wear them forever, and they will be an honorable sign that we've been living the life of Christ. Point number three, practical number three, glory lasts forever. Ready? Break. Oh, that was a good one. Glory lasts forever. You know, we have this circumstantial Christianity, and I think a lot of times for myself, the reason I can get caught up in the temporary and the things that I feel is because I forget about the long game. I forget about eternity. I forget that salvation is not just me feeling happy or at peace in this moment, but it's about an eternal life where I'm with God forever. Shane Falco reminded us, glory lasts forever. Verse 28, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved and that by God. All right. Sometimes we forget that we will be saved by God. Our suffering does not merit salvation. But it is a cost that we sign up for when we follow him. When we choose to follow Christ, when we choose to make him Lord of our lives, we join in the ranks of every martyr that has ever died for the name of Jesus. We sign ourselves up to die and suffer the same way every apostle and disciple in the Bible did. In fact, in the way that Jesus himself did. But that brings us, and even more, that brings God a glory that lasts forever. Because when you have your scars and when people see your life and they see that you struggle to make ends meet sometimes, but that you always give to the church, you always sacrifice for special missions, you always pay your contribution, you always have people into your house to feed them. You're as tired as can be, but you always get up to read your Bible and pray and take the extra 15 minutes to drive out of your way to pick someone up who doesn't have a ride to church. See, when people see that, God is honored for all eternity. There's a word in Greek, doxa, and it means glory. Now, the best devotional I've ever heard in my life is I have a professor in grad school from a church of Christ down in Memphis, Tennessee, Harding School of, of Theology. His name's Dr. Hufford. And he did this devotional one time about the glory of God. And he went through Hebrew and he went through Greek. And what he said is, you know, today we kind of have a misunderstanding of what the word glory means. When we think of glory, we tend to think of something that's bright, something that's shiny, reflective, something that's glorious, like glistening Christmas lights or perfectly polished crystal. But he says glory... This word doxa in the Greek is much more aligned to our understanding of honor. So we talk about the glory of God, and he challenged us to do this. He said, every time you read glory in your Bible, substitute the word honor. When we say for the glory of God, we're really meaning for the honor of God. When we say glory be to Jesus, we're saying all honor be to Jesus. 
Because when we understand the word honor, that changes our conduct, doesn't it? Because none of us would want to dishonor the man who loved us enough to die for us. But when we say glory, sometimes we don't quite understand what that means. When we live in a way with no clauses, with no circumstantial changes to our discipleship, to our Christianity, God is honored for all eternity. And we will be honored alongside him when the day comes. It says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that was written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory lasts forever. When we live in a way that honors God, we are receiving for ourselves a crown that will never perish, spoil, or fade. When we live a life that is unchained, like Paul's been talking about. When we live a life where we suffer, where we have scars, where we go through pain and we don't allow that pain or those emotions or those circumstances to stray us from a life that honors God, we receive a crown that he has in store for us. Where, O oh death, is your sting? There is no sting in death. I know you're tired. I know you're hurting. I wish I could say something that was classy and inspirational. But that just wouldn't be our style. Pain heals. Chicks dig scars. Glory lasts forever. Shotgun, DC right, clip 90, dig. On the center, on the center, ready, great. Amen. Amen. Tanner, thank you so very much.